That music, which we have used so often over the years, uh, the theme to that wonderful spaghetti western, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, is music which, sadly, the obituaries for its composer, Ennio Morricone, this week, pointed out, probably made Clint Eastwood. Morricone certainly deserves some further commentary on this program, but unfortunately we do not have a suitable obituary in front of us to cite. So we'll put that off till next week. We must respectfully offer up uh, our thanks for how that wonderful little bit of music has perked up this show over the decades. So let us do, as we so often like to do, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today we are indebted to The Week magazine for our selections. should also note we're indebted to The Week magazine for a lot of what we talked about in the last segment. We would note that, according to The Week, it was a good week last week for viral marketing with the opening in Miami of COVID-19 Essentials, a stylish boutique offering face masks, hand sanitizer, non-contact door openers, and every other conceivable pandemic accessory. Marveled shopper Hilly Hazan, it's like a toy store. Well, more like a viral toy store, but hey, we applaud their ingenuity, and this is the kind of thing we do need in America, and you know, maybe it'll catch on elsewhere. On the other hand, it was a bad week last week for Willie Brown, former mayor of San Francisco and past Radio Parallax guest, who was commemorated in the In Memoriam segment of the Black Entertainment Television Awards telecast. Willie Brown, age 86, is in fact still alive. Unlike Willie Brown, Hall of Famer cornerback for the Oakland Raiders, the still-living Brown said he hopes all my creditors take notice. And it was surely an ugly week for inventors this past week, with a public call from NASA to the nation's community of makers garage tinkerers, and citizen scientists to help develop a zero-gravity toilet. And if you want to enlist in this, in this project, NASA is asking for a toilet that can handle simultaneous urination and defecation, including, and I must confess this one makes me a bit weak in the knee, including 500 grams of diarrhea per event. And I got to say, if you're not scared by the prospect of diarrhea in zero gravity, well, you're, you're braver than I am. And we're not sure whether it's a good week for political correctness or a bad week for the American Real Estate Association, but the Houston Association of Realtors has retired the term master bedroom and master bathroom. This is because of the potential slavery connotations at least in their minds, the terms primary bedroom and primary bathroom will be used instead. Consensus, said the association, was that primary describes the rooms equally well as master while avoiding any possible misperceptions. I have to add that in contemporary America, the idea of avoiding any possible misperceptions seems like an illusory goal. Rating on this topic in NationalReview.com, a source we normally ridicule, Kyle Smith opined that here in the year of the stupid, protesters are even threatening to give, quote-unquote, the Saddam Hussein treatment 
to a Washington, D.C. statue of Abraham Lincoln and a freed slave. They're talking about dragging them right off the plinth. Said Mr. Smith, the great awakening has unleashed a wave of mindless rage equivalent to the French Revolution, as leftists, intellectuals, online mobs, and violent street protesters seek to retroactively scrub our nation and our history of any resistance to their new anti-racist standards. I have to say, when they're defacing and talking about tearing down statues of George Washington, that I have to join the chorus saying, Stop! Having won the Revolutionary War, George Washington was clearly in a position to make himself the new dictator of America. This did not happen, thanks to George Washington's sense of propriety. And although, God knows, we are not a perfect nation, I think it's pretty undeniable that we are, we are a better nation over the years than we surely might otherwise have been due to our first president, George Washington. We've quoted it several times in this program before, but I think we need to quote it again one more time, although unfortunately I don't have the exact quote in front of me. But I do know that while in exile, Napoleon Bonaparte, reflecting back on his career, which took him from being a Corsican artillery captain to dictator and emperor, and of course, despite the fact that he was undoubtedly a military genius, and a genius in many respects, he did drench the European continent in blood. Looking back on his remarkable career... Napoleon Bonaparte said, well, you know, they wanted me to be Washington, and, and, and I, I just couldn't. Anyway, many years back, many, many years back, we, we did a program talking about the French Revolution. It is an interesting tale, to be sure, with uh, some interesting comparisons and contrast to that of the American Revolution. France certainly differed from America in that some of its rather zealous revolutionaries decided to take a lot of people to the guillotine including, unfortunately for posterity, one of history's great scientists, Anton Lavoisier. His crime was that he'd been a tax collector for the king at one point, and tax collectors weren't very popular during the revolution. Maybe it's unfair to compare the politically correct of today to the French revolutionaries that were trotting people off to the guillotine, but, as noted by Kyle Smith, our cultural torchbearers this week extracted apologies from comedians Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel for decades-old blackface skits. Terrified TV networks and streaming services promptly announced that episodes of 30 Rock, Scrubs, and The Office will now be removed for instances of racial humor that caused no fuss at the time. One episode of The Golden Girls got banned because two main characters wearing facial mud masks tell a black family we're not really black. Of course, part of me at this point wonders whether it isn't a bit of a false flag operation of, of people on the right to go out there and deface statues of George Washington. And I guess we have to mention a few of the president's more choice comments made at Mount Rushmore. <sighs> anyway, on CNN... Malv Reston noted that in a jaw-dropping speech that amounted to a cultural war bonfire, Donald Trump used the backdrop of Mount Rushmore to frame protests as a nefarious left-wing mob that intends to end America. Those opponents, he argued, are engaged in a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. Apparently the president was hinting to the nation that the statues at Mount Rushmore of Washington, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Lincoln were possibly under attack, saying, I am here as your president to proclaim before the country and before the world, this monument will never be desecrated. 
Earlier in the week, Trump had threatened protesters who were accused of throwing red paint on a Manhattan statue of George Washington with 10 years in prison. Now, you know, we might agree with the the notion that throwing red paint on Washington is kind of a jerk move, but 10 years in prison? I mean, as far as illegalities go, how does that compare with, say, conspiring with a foreign nation to manipulate an American national election? Just asking. Let's take a break from all this and look at some other miscellaneous dubious ideas, shall we? Here's truly has been pawing through some of the archives amassed for this program over the years and found a few little items of note. Here's a little item from The Economist from 10 years ago. Now, as you may or may not be aware, there is something of an ecological crisis taking place in southern Florida owing to the fact that large reptiles capable of eating human beings... I've been let loose in the Florida Everglades. To quote from this piece in The Economist, the spread of Burmese pythons in the Everglades is responsible for sparking a wave of herpetophobia. <laughs> well, I guess. I, I think they found one recently that was 17 feet long. Burmese pythons are thought to have found their way into the wild because pet owners released them, and now thousands are slithering around. They are eating some endangered species like the Key Largo wood rat. In fact, they seem to be eating everything in the Everglades. But here's the sentence that leaves me a bit gobsmacked (laughs) out of The Economist. It notes that breeders are up in arms at the prospect of a ban. Yes, just when you're thinking that there couldn't be anything dumber than protesting for the ability to not wear masks in public. We, We have this advocacy from the breeders of Burmese pythons taking issue with the prospect of banning them from America, to which we'd have to add, well, it is a little bit late now. But no, speaking on behalf of this advocacy group, opponents speculate that if snake owners are unable to transport or sell some of their snakes beyond state lines, they may just release them into the wild. The federal government, this is 10 years ago, again, showing the federal government really on top of things. The federal government may have to consider offering amnesty days, as Florida does, when snake owners can turn in their foreign pets. Florida has also started giving people permits to kill Burmese pythons. Well, in the 10 years since this was uh, was posted, there have been several organized attempts to go out there and kill these nasty creatures. And, uh, well, they, they only managed to bag a few score of them. And the piece closes with... Some may say this is cruel, the idea of issuing permits to kill them, but that depends on whether you side with the pythons or the wood rat. Or we would add anything else alive in the Everglades, including alligators. But adding to the list of, you know, dumb ideas in the South, in this case we would say that would be like how to deal with COVID-19, Burmese pythons, and kudzu. Noted Radar Magazine some years back, in 1876, the fast-growing kudzu vine made its way from Eastern Asia to the United States and quickly became all the rage. Down in the American South, its heavy coverage provided shade from the heat, livestock seemed to like the taste, and it even improved the quality of the soil because it puts nitrogen in and prevented erosion. Kudzu seemed to have so many advantages, is in fact... Then in the 1930s, the United States government helped farmers plant the vine all across the southern states, to which Radar added, big mistake. Within 20 years, the kudzu had spread out of control, covering crop fields and trees, often killing the vegetation in its path. Today, utility companies in the 
in the South spend millions of dollars annually trying to keep their poles and towers kudzu-free and with no help from the U.S. government, other than a list of vine-ridding tips on the federal website. Mr. Merlin says he looked that one up. It said, cut vine, remove from power pole. Well, we're just kidding, but what else would it say? Well, I guess these days it might also add, keep an eye out for pythons. And think about wearing a mask and social distancing. Here's an item that comes not from the archives, but, but the, from the current edition of New Scientist magazine. Noted New Scientist's feedback section. If nothing else, you would think that the saga of Bodie McBoatface would have taught public relations teams a valuable lesson. If you decide to let something's name be chosen by a popular vote, then prepare to never be able to say that name again with a straight face. The latest victim of this trend, that would be the city elders of Florence on the Oregon coast. They decided to crowdsource the name of a new park. They opened the vote to residents and let the citizenry speak. What they spoke, apparently, was that they wanted the new green space to be named Exploding Whale Memorial Park. (laughs) In case you're unfamiliar with this remarkable tale, it turns out that back in November of 1970, a decomposing seven-ton whale that had beached itself near Florence was turning into quite a problem for the locals. The whale was rotting. And as you might imagine, seven tons of rotting whale can put out quite a stink. There seems to be no doubt that something needed to be done about this situation, but what the people in Florence decided to do, and admittedly, we now have the benefit of of hindsight on this issue, but what they decided to do rather ill-advisedly was to blow the whale up. And yes, some time ago I did check on YouTube, and yes, there is footage still available of this momentous uh, episode. Wherein they stuck dynamite, lots of it, underneath the carcass of the whale and blew it up. They did not expect, but probably should have, what then ensued, which was that spectators of the scene then looked up to see falling from the sky large chunks of rotting blubber. I don't think anybody was hurt, nor was anybody killed by this, but, well, I can't do this whole thing justice. Look it up. Look it up on the internet sometime. I believe they finally wound up towing what was left of the whale back out to sea, which of course probably would have been a good idea right at the onset. But anyway, if you're planning this summer to take a drive up the Oregon coast, and you're thinking about dropping by Exploding Whale Memorial Park, please drop us a line and let us know how that went. And here's one item from the science file that I I find rather jaw-dropping. We live here in California, and California is not noted for its lightning storms. I absolutely do remember the first time I heard thunder. I think I was nine. If you're hearing this program and live in the American East Coast or down the tropics somewhere, you're, you're a little bit more familiar with thunder and lightning. No matter what your familiarity is with this natural phenomenon, I ask you, what do you think the biggest flash of lightning ever would measure out at? Well, apparently the good folks at NASA have put up a satellite with the purpose of monitoring the world's lightning strikes. And the largest lightning flash ever measured has now been identified. It was more than twice the size of the previous record. It spanned 709 kilometers. 
That's over 420 miles for those of you here in America. This would cover the distance between London and Geneva. That's whether you measure it in kilometers or miles. Mr. Willen is pointing out Americans' geographical illiteracy. I, I, would, I would point out, sir, that we're talking about Radio Parallax listeners here. They know how far it is from London to Geneva. But for those who might not, we'd be talking about a lightning bolt that went somewhere from, let's say, Sacramento to Los Angeles. How's that? The other part about this I find amazing was that the flash lasted 16.7 seconds. That's more likely than I want to deal with. Mr. Millen tells me we've got about 12 minutes left on today's program, and I want to take this in a totally different direction. Uh, about a year or two ago, we mentioned that we were watching some, uh, something on YouTube, I think it was. It was, a, it was a clip featuring Orson Welles, always an interesting character. Welles mentioned that he had met General George C. Marshall and considered him to be the greatest man he ever met. The thing is... I think a lot of people thought that General George C. Marshall might be the greatest person he ever met. So interesting is he that I thought we could probably devote an entire segment to him. We're not going to do that. We're going to devote 12 minutes to him today. Because in going through the archives, I found an article from Smithsonian. Its title, George C. Marshall, The Last Great American? Question mark. Piece by Lance Morrow. The subheadline is, No Soldier Since Washington has had his Roman virtues and so significantly shaped a peace. Said Lance Morrow, as Emerson said, every hero becomes a bore at last. Washington and Marshall both may seem too good to be true. But when I put George Washington and George Marshall side by side and look at them against the backdrop of the national leadership now in office, it is easy to think that I am looking at the first American grown-up and the last. As much as any man, Marshall saved world democracy at the moment of its greatest danger. He took up his duties as U.S. Army Chief of Staff on September 1, 1939, the day that Hitler marched into Poland. He began with an absurdly ill-equipped army of 174,000 men, ranking 17th in the world behind such nations as Bulgaria and Portugal, and turned it into a global fighting force of more than 8 million an army without which the Allies would not have defeated Nazi Germany and Japan. I think both Mr. Will and I would pause this moment to say, well, maybe that was a bit of a team effort. Morrow said, Ulysses Grant was the first master of industrial warfare. George Marshall was the first genius of bureaucratic warfare. A Napoleon riding a desk. Not Marshall flamboyants, but logistics saved the world in 1939 to 1945 although the world may still not be mature enough to understand that. Now, it seems pretty fair to say that George Marshall is not anywhere as near as well-known as his fellow general, Dwight Eisenhower. But there was a moment around Thanksgiving of 1943 that might have changed everything and propelled Marshall into a higher historical orbit. FDR needed to settle upon a general who would lead the Allied invasion of France and reconquest of Europe. Everyone assumed that Army Chief of Staff Marshall would get the job that he had magnificently earned. It was going to come down to either Marshall or Eisenhower. As it turned out, FDR decided that no one else could deal with Congress as effectively as Marshall did. No other soldier would have Marshall's immense moral authority and credibility. 
No one else knew the world military situation as well. By the time, by the, time the meetings in Cairo and Tehran between Churchill and Roosevelt ended, Roosevelt took Marshall aside and said, I feel I could not sleep at night with you out of the country. Being the kind of guy he was, Marshall accepted the decision without question or comment. Both Roosevelt and Marshall were correct in predicting that being kept at his desk in the War Department would deprive Marshall of the honor in history which he deserves. History is not fair, noted Morrow. In his opinion, Marshall was a greater man than Eisenhower, yet it was Ike who went to the White House for eight years. He also notes that Marshall was a greater general and better man than the theatrical and self-promoting Douglas MacArthur. Yet MacArthur lives on more vividly in whatever remains of American historical memory. Despite an offer of seven-figure publisher's advance, Marshall refused to write his memoirs after the war. To do so, he suggested, would require him to tell the full story, and such truth-telling would sometimes wound old colleagues. After World War II, Churchill, who had worked closely with Marshall and often quarreled with him over Allied strategies, said to the chief of staff, succeeding generations must not be allowed to forget his achievements and his example. It is Marshall who has given credit for harnessing America's industrial might and turning it into a vast war machine. And after the war, it was George Marshall that led America out of isolation with the Marshall Plan. Seeing how a destroyed Europe in the wake of World War I led directly to World War II, Marshall thought it would be a good idea to economically rebuild the ravaged nations. Of course, then, as now, isolationists and conservatives in the government wanted no part of this. But Marshall testified before Congress, traveled the country, patiently explaining it was no giveaway program. He told businessmen countries who wanted financial support had to come up with feasible plans for economic recovery. And there was plenty of accountability. Without a thriving Europe, who would we buy and sell from? Without parliamentary democracy on the continent, what chance was there for continued peace? Twice in 50 years, he reminded isolationists, America had gone to war to keep Europe free from single power domination. Clear proof of how much Europe mattered to America. In the four years between 1948 and 1952, the Marshall Plan channeled some $13 billion in reconstruction aid and technical assistance to 16 European countries. For that, George Marshall received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1953. And no, we don't know how often the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded to members of the military, but it can't be that often. Anyway, there's a lot that could be said, and I guess with four minutes to go, I can, I can be satisfied with an eight-minute thumbnail outline of the greatness of George Marshall. And you know what? I think I'll take that option. To do him justice, we really need about a half an hour, and we didn't have it today. But we might return to this topic again. Let's instead take a few minutes to talk about a Scientific American article from September of 2005 that I stumbled on. I cut it out, but evidently never read it until now. This piece by Herman E. Daly, 15 years ago, noted that the global economy is now so large that society can no longer safely pretend it operates within a limitless ecosystem. Developing an economy that can be sustained within a finite biosphere requires new ways of thinking, to which we say, here, here. The article has a very strong start, and I think I'll just quote from it as we close today. Said Herman E. Daly, Growth is widely thought to be the panacea for all the major economic ills of the modern world. 
Poverty, just grow the economy. That is, increase the production of goods and services and spur the consumer spending and watch the wealth trickle down. Don't try to redistribute wealth from rich to poor because that slows growth. Unemployment, increase demand for goods and services by lowering the interest rates on loans and stimulating investment, which leads to more jobs as well as growth. Overpopulation, just push economic growth and rely on the resulting demographic transition to reduced birth rates, as did the industrial nations during the 20th century. Environmental degradation, trust in the environmental Kuznets curve, an empirical relation purporting to show that with ongoing growth in gross domestic product, pollution at first increases, but then reaches a maximum and declines, said Herman Daly. Relying on growth in this way might be fine if the global economy existed in a void, but it does not. Rather, the economy is a subsystem of the finite biosphere that supports it. When the economy's expansion encroaches too much on its surrounding ecosystem, it will begin to sacrifice natural capital, such as fish, minerals, and fossil fuels, that is worth more than the man-weighed capital, such as roads, factories, and appliances, added by growth. We will then have what I call uneconomic growth, producing bads faster than goods, making us poorer, not richer. Once we pass the optimal scale, growth becomes stupid in the short run and impossible to maintain in the long run. Evidence suggests that the U.S. may already have entered the uneconomic growth phase. And we'll end it with this telling paragraph. Recognizing and avoiding uneconomic growth are not easy. One problem is that some people benefit from uneconomic growth and thus have no incentive for change. In addition, our national accounts do not register the cost of growth for all to see. I guess being a biologist, I tend to look at things through the eyes of a biologist, not the eyes of an economist. He's, of course, right about the economy being a subset of the greater biosphere. But unfortunately, he's also right about the fact that some people benefit from uneconomic growth. And oh my God, there's so much we could say about that in today's world, but we are out of time. But there is one final little zinger I have to insert. This comes from Esquire in the year 2001 when they sat down with Kirk Douglas. Said Kirk Douglas, then age 84, to Esquire during their chat. I was playing golf and I said to my partner, let those old geezers tee off first. And my partner says to me, Kirk, those old geezers are 15 years younger than you. And to that I would have to add, a part of me really likes the fact that Kirk Douglas in his mind, was a much younger man. But then, to some degree, did that not, in fact, make him a much younger man? I don't know. Maybe. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Edward R. Murrow, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.